This is Play-By-Play Cast. Is that faster than a greyhound? The podcast about play-by-play guys. For play-by-play guys, by I'm told, a play-by-play guy. It's a bold strategy, Cotton. Let's see if it pays off for him. Now here's the host of Play-by-Play Cast, Todd Bodet. Wait, the Motel 6 guy? We'll leave the light on for you. No, Joel Godet. Joe Godet. Joel. Joe. Joel? Joel, with an L. Okay, here's your host, Joel Godet. Don't worry, nobody's listening anyway. We've almost made it to 50, people. It's episode 48 of Play by Playcast. We are closing in on a full year of this podcast as well. So thank you, as always, for clicking subscribe or download. Uh, we couldn't, well, I guess we could do this without you. It just wouldn't be as rewarding. Nobody would be listening. But, uh, yeah, I guess we couldn't do this without you. Uh, many thanks for clicking subscribe or download again here on a Friday morning. My name is Joel Godet. This is the podcast about play-by-play guys for play-by-play guys hosted by a play-by-play guy. Housekeeping notes off the top, as always. If you want to get in touch with the show, you can hit us up on Twitter at PXPCast. You can find me on Twitter at Joel Godet. That's J-O-E-L-G-O-D-E-T-T. Or you can email me as well. Got a couple emails this past week. Uh, J-G-O-D-E-T-T at B-S-U dot E-D-U. That's B-S-U for Ball State University dot E-D-U. Crazy time of year, first and foremost. I, like, I, I think I said a couple of weeks ago, this is the time of year when it starts to calm down in college athletics. And conceivably, that's true. But two weeks ago, I, I was supposed to do Mid-American Conference Women's Tennis Tournament on ESPN3. That got rained out, moved indoors. We didn't broadcast it. Uh, but that was like a week of trying to memorize Lithuanian tennis names and, and learn their backstories and about their hometowns. And then when that got uh, knocked out, the next week, this past week, was all about memorizing eight teams of high school lacrosse. Did high school lacrosse, the Midwest Lacrosse Challenge, first uh, tournament of its kind out here in the Midwest, on Lac Sports Network last week. So I had to learn eight high school teams. And, of course, not a ton of information on that stuff. Uh, So I'm talking to coaches and trying to figure out backstories on 30 different guys and for eight teams, four of which I knew I wasn't going to broadcast. I just didn't know which four uh, because we didn't do the quarters. So uh, it was was a lot of uh, interesting work over the last couple of weeks. Quick aside on that note, guys that do high school sports on a regular basis, I mean, tip of the cap. Because from a research standpoint, uh, again, like there's less out there, uh, which I, I feel like we always knew. I always knew. Did high school stuff when I was in college, uh, and I haven't really done it in a long time. Uh, but but digging down deep to find some information on these guys, and then uh, really having to dig down deep with coaches and spend some good time with them, and, and talk to some uh, people on the phone, uh, and then also trying to keep your own statistics, which gosh, you take for granted in Division One collegiate athletics. I showed up to this tournament last week, and I had my, my stat sheets printed off, my face-offs, my turnovers, my shot chart, my goals, my runs, all that stuff. I had it all set up. I was planned out. I was going to be like Johnny Stat on the spot. It lasted 90 seconds. Like three shots into the game, I had already forgotten to mark down shots, and I, I literally forgot to even mark down the first face-off win. So <laughs> that, was, that was a moot point. I recruited a, a guy to help me, had a person that was running the scoreboard for the championship help me with the stats the second day. But tip of the cap to people that, that do a lot of high school stuff and, and have to keep their own stats because, yay, we take uh, that for granted at the at the Division One level. I had to do math on the fly, people. And if you know me, that's not a safe proposition. My color analyst right now for basketball is well, football too. My stats guy in particular are probably rolling listening to this at the moment. I know David Eha listens to the podcast from basketball, so I know he's getting a kick out of this. Yeah, me having to do math on the fly, not a good mix. Uh, so that was interesting as well. And now, hey, this week and next week, it's the end of college baseball season. We're getting into college baseball tournament time. Uh, it gets crazy, uh, but that's why it's fun. That's why we all do this. So uh, exciting time of year as well. I've also, because of, I've got a lot going on, I've got library books that are overdue. I owe the Noblesville Public Library like five bucks for a book. I may as well have just bought it at this point. But, uh, yeah, that happened. Anyway, uh, 
all in within that, uh, I have had the chance to record some interviews for the podcast and a couple of guests coming up that I'm, I'm really stoked about. Uh, first off, next week, Mark Janes will join us. He's the voice of the Indy 500, which is coming up at the end of the month. Uh, as an Indiana resident, I've actually never been to the 500 because our conference baseball tournament at Ball State is the same time. But uh, I wanted to have Mark on because I'm a regular, uh, 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 I'm a relative racing neophyte. So I, I kind of wanted to get the, the down low on how radio works for the Indy 500 and what it's like being the traffic cop for pit reporters and his analyst and uh, your turn announcers and kind of what goes into all of that, announcing crashes. We get into all of that as well. Uh, so if you're a racing fan, Mark Janes is with us next week here on the podcast. This week, though, is a guy I've wanted to have on for a very long time. Uh, and finally, we were able to connect and uh, record this episode this week. It's Andrew Catalan from CBS Sports. He and I met each other a couple of years back at a Syracuse WAER Radio Hall of Fame induction uh, and reunion kind of deal as well. And uh, we've kept in touch over the last couple of years. And he was one of the first people I thought of when uh, I launched this podcast last year. And then just for one reason or another and schedules on his end and my end, uh, we weren't able to, to make it happen until, until just recently. Uh, Andrew and I, while we met a couple of years ago, actually go back an oddly long ways without knowing it. Uh, he currently lives in Short Hills, New Jersey, and attended Milburn High School. He grew up in Milburn, or he grew up in Short Hills. Short Hills and Milburn go to the same high school. Um, I grew up in Short Hills, New Jersey as well. We did not know each other. Uh, he's a little bit older than me. But he went to high school with my brother at Milburn High School. They also did not know each other. Giant high school. But uh, they were a year apart in high school. Um, and then Anne Hathaway was a year younger as well. Anne Hathaway, the actress, went to prom with my brother. A little braggadocious there. But uh, they all went to Milburn High School together at the same time. And Andrew Catalan's mother was actually the computer teacher, although not my computer teacher, at Wyoming School, which is an elementary school in the Milburn Short Hills School District. I went to Wyoming. Wyoming School is the place for me. No other place that I'd rather be. That was the school song. So Andrew Catalan's mother was the computer teacher at the elementary school that I went to, although she was not my teacher. And then Andrew went to high school with my brother, although they didn't know each other. But that's the circuitous kind of six degrees of broadcasting Kevin Bacon for you with Andrew Catalan and myself dating all the way back to like 1997. Um, that said, as an odd precursor, uh, Andrew has been with CBS for, I think, what, seven years now? Uh, he did his first NFL game with the network back in 2011, and we'll get into that here on the podcast. But he started as a TV uh, news reporter, TV, or TV news anchor. He went to Burlington, Vermont, right out of Syracuse, and then went to Albany, New York, and was in Albany for almost 10 years, nine and a half years he was in Albany, and thought he was going to be a TV guy, uh, a local TV news guy, or TV uh, sports on TV guy, and did play-by-play -play in college, but didn't really do play-by-play -play right away out of college. Uh, and in the podcast here, we'll talk about how he wound up back in play-by-play. -play. It has to do with curling. Uh, what it's like um, doing some kind of niche sports. How that opened the doors for him to get to the NFL and college basketball and so on and so forth at CBS. And then we get into his process and his preparation for the NCAA men's basketball tournament and preparation for the NFL. And we talk about nerves of his first NFL broadcast. But of course, as we start with, I feel like most Syracuse guys on this podcast, the number one question, WAER radio, which is the cornerstone of Syracuse sports broadcasting, Andrew Catalan, who was in your class at WAER? What other guys did you come up with? That's where we start with Andrew Catalan here on play by Playcast. Yeah, so we had a great class in AER. Um, Damon Amendolaro was our sports director, who's obviously doing great things at CBS Sports Radio right now. Um, Chris Wojcik is one of my close friends. He works for the NHL. Bill Voth works for the Carolina Panthers. Kevin Cooper was a tremendous uh, public relations man for the Houston Texans, and he just ran PR for the Super Bowl in Houston. 
Um, and then we've got, I mean, Mylon Kasanovich works for the FBI. Uh, Mark Penziner does financial stuff. So we have such a great, uh, diverse crew, but, you know, it was, it was a great time to be at AER and, you know, a couple, couple grades above us were Adam Shine, uh, who's a good friend of mine. So, uh, Adam Zucker, who works at CBS, was a few years older than Adam. So he used to just go up and down from around our time. And there was a lot of, uh, tremendous, not only talent, but, but people as well. Did you want to be a play by play guy from the get go? What was kind of your, I mean, obviously that's the, that's what AER is most known for. Uh, were were you there thinking I'm going to be the next, Marv, basically? Well, I, I never thought I was going to be the next Marv, but I did have a liking to play-by-play, and that's what, obviously, as you said, I did at AER the entire time. But it was strange because then my senior year, I did a, a television internship at WTVH in Syracuse, and I, I decided by doing that internship that I wanted to go the local TV route. I, I kind of wanted to anchor in one community, not travel, and just kind of establish myself in one location and kind of work my way up that way. So that's that's the path I started on. And I stopped doing play-by-play. I got into local TV, first in Burlington, Vermont, and then in Albany, New York. And then I was going along in Albany. I kind of missed the adrenaline of doing games. They were very cooperative at that station, allowing me to kind of keep my toe in the water and doing some play-by-play on the side. And gradually... That got more and more, and then I, I got some more uh, roles doing play-by-play, and then I kind of morphed and transitioned back into play-by-play, and that's where I am right now. So I've kind of had two different lives with play-by-play and, and local TV anchoring. When you went into local TV anchoring, did you think like, okay, well, this is my route now? Or I did, I did actually. I, I thought that that was what I was going to do. I mean, you know, growing up in New Jersey, similar to you, I – I watched Channel 4, and I watched Len Berman all the time. <laughs> he was the guy I wanted to be, and I thought that by starting in Burlington, that could be my path to one day get to New York, and I did get to anchor some updates uh, nationally on NBC, and I was like, this is great. This is kind of what I want to do, and then I really just missed being at the games and you know, saw a lot of opportunity in play-by-play as well, and that kind of drew me back. Yeah, I've always wanted to do the uh, and nobody got hurt was always kind of my thing as a kid. <laughs> <laughs> what, what, I forget what's what I'm going to be. This is a terrible sports fan. Now, what was the segment called? Well, uh, spanning the world. Right? That's spanning right, the spanning the globe, yeah. spanning the globe, and nobody got hurt. Um, yeah, yeah, that, no, and then Warner Wolf at the same time or a similar <laughs> time frame. You know, if you had the Jets and forty points, you still lost. I mean, those were <laughs> those were things I grew up watching and will always remember. Uh, when did you get that itch for play-by-play? And as a TV news guy now, or TV sports guy now, uh, how'd you go about kind of delving into that, being up in Vermont? Yeah, so I did very little in Vermont. I did a couple of women's basketball games, but there weren't too many play-by-play opportunities up there. But when I got to Albany, um, really the the, the story, uh, that, that as it goes, is that there's a production house in Saratoga, New York, called Car Hughes Productions. And uh, it's about a half hour from where I was working. And, and they just blindly called the television station I was working at, WNYT, and they said, look, we're in a real bind. Uh, we have a curling show that needs to be voiced over tomorrow morning. And our announcer that we were flying in uh, got into trouble traveling with weather and just can't make it. And we're, and we're sure that you don't know anything about curling, which was indeed the case. <laughs> but we just need someone basically to be traffic cop, come up here, intro the segment, set up the analyst, and we'll give you a couple hundred bucks. And, and you'd be bailing us out because the show needed to be done tomorrow morning. We had to get it in. I said, yeah, I'll, I'll do it. Again, I, I know nothing about this sport, but I, I'll gladly drive up there and make a couple hundred bucks. So I went up there and, you know, kind of stayed up that night and just tried to figure out a little bit of what was going on. And, uh, you know, just played traffic cop, played it simple and, you know, teed up the analyst. And they really liked, you know, what I did. And I enjoyed doing the play-by-play. And it led to a little bit more curling. And then it led to a series of luge events. And it led to traveling for equestrian and I was doing all these Olympic sports through this production company. And then they worked closely with NBC sports and NBC called them and said, Hey, we need a new curling announcer. 
do you have anyone you've been working with? And they said me. And that kind of got me on the path to doing more play-by-play. I, I started doing the Olympics for NBC, which I still continue to do. And it led me to an opportunity at CBS, which has become my full-time home. So really answering that one phone call and agreeing to do this curling show for a couple hundred dollars, thanks to this production company, Car Hughes, uh, really set me uh, on my journey to where I'm at now. Okay, so you did your first basketball game when? <laughs> well, I mean, obviously basketball in college, but in terms of uh, basketball on TV, I did a, a couple of women's games in Vermont, and then in Albany, you know, they had a they had a Time Warner affiliate there. They did a lot of high school sports. They did Siena College basketball games. I did some of those. So that, as I said, kind of kept my toe in the water uh, a little bit. And then when I got the opportunities at the Olympics, which led to some some bigger things at CBS, it was really when I got back into the fold at CBS that I started doing college basketball regularly on CBS Sports Network, a lot of Mountain West conference games. And that that kind of cemented me at CBS Sports Network you know, with, with the, the college basketball that I still do to this day. What are you thinking as you're doing – the curling and and you've done handball and tennis and luge and all of those things uh as far as yeah you know, like what am i doing here type moments uh what was at the time if you can take me back to the 20 something andrew catalan with how you were thinking about it and how you were approaching it to like where is this going to take me kind of thing yeah i mean look to be completely honest a lot of it was because it was some extra money i mean that that's the way it started out um yes i love doing play-by-play but i was doing sports that i didn't know much about that took a lot of studying and learning but i liked having a little extra money on top of it and you know eventually as i started to do it and got some really good feedback about it i i started to think more about it like you know maybe this is what i should be doing instead of local television or, you know, maybe I should just do play by play and focus on that. And, you know, doing the Olympics certainly was a confidence boost and, and that helped me make the decision because, you know, as anyone who does play by play knows, especially in the beginning, you kind of got to step off that ledge a little bit and you got to take the leap. And it's not as secure as the regular paycheck I was getting every week doing local TV. Um, It was, okay, we need you for two weeks in January, but then we don't need you again till March or April. And, you know, that's, that's something that is very hard for young play-by-play broadcasters to be able to do when you have a steady income coming to, to make that jump. But, you know, thankfully the station I worked at in Albany was incredibly cooperative. They, they let me continue to work there, but they were also very generous about letting me take time off so I didn't have to say no to all these opportunities I started to get. So I was very lucky to be put in that situation with that station. They were very good to me. And eventually in 2013, I had enough play-by-play stuff where I felt like I could make the jump and, and leave local TV. And I had great times and great memories. met my wife at the station where I worked in Albany. But, you know, I, I really am I'm happy I chose this path. Do you ever miss local TV? I do. I, you know, I, I miss being in a newsroom on a nightly basis with, you know, all my coworkers. <laughs> Having um, people around. You know, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, most of the time I am either on an airplane or in my basement preparing to go on an airplane doing work for the games. And, you know, the, you know, for, for NFL Sunday, you know, our crew becomes my second family because we have the same, you know, production people and the same people in the booth. Basketball is a little different. I'm always with one guy, Steve Lapis, but the producer and director change. But, yeah, no, I, I do. I miss – you know, tonight we'd be watching the hockey game as we're getting ready to do the 11 o'clock news and everyone would be hanging around and, you know, it's just different. So I, there, there's a lot of aspects I miss. I, I miss making a connection with the community because now I travel around so much that it's not like there's just one area where I, you know, can feel I've made a connection. I did a high school player of the week segment. You know, I, I thought it was great profiling these high school kids. So there's a lot of things that I miss. Uh, but at the same time, again, I feel very fortunate to uh, to be on the path that I'm on now. Off that note, and, and I, w- I want to ask this in two separate ways, because I think it's different with basketball, football, especially where you're at now, and, and the other stuff that you did Olympic sport-wise when you were first starting out. Um, but what was your mindset and what was your kind of approach when you dealt with more niche sports and you're just a guy kind of helicoptering in, where I'm sure 
I mean, it can go both ways where somebody's going to look at you and say, oh, you know, great, we're on TV. Let's let's help this guy out. But you could also get the, like, who is this? Like, just showing up doing, pretending he knows curling. Um, you know, how do you deal with the that perception um, and learn the sport you, the best you can and, uh, and, and gain people's trust and... Um, I guess trust in, in the fact that you know what you're doing and that you're there to um, convey what you're seeing the, the best way possible and, and do it justice. Sure. No, it's, it's a great question. And it was very hard to do that because I never curled. I never did equestrian. I never rode a horse. I never went down a loose track. Um, these are all <laughs> things that I didn't have experience doing. Have you done those you since, know, by the way? I have. I've not ridden a horse, no, <laughs> nor nor do I think I ever will. Have you gone um, down a loose track? I have. I went very slowly. <laughs> uh, yes, I've done a skeleton uh, adventure as well. Um, so yeah, those are all things that they have awesome. Try I mean, curling is, it looks so easy on TV. It's actually really hard to keep your balance. At least I found it very hard to keep my balance and you know throw a rock you know down the other end of the ice, but. Uh, yeah, no, I have tried some of those, that stuff, but but basically, the, the woman who hired me at NBC Olympics, Molly Solomon, is now at the Golf Channel, and, and she really taught me a lot about this business. Was you know, her advice was the person at home in the United States watching curling doesn't know a lot of the stuff that's going on either. So if if there's a question that's in your mind, meaning me, what's going on right now? Just ask the analyst that question. So instead of trying to pretend like you've been this 20-year expert on curling, don't. Be one of the people at home who are probably thinking the same thing as you as you learn this sport. Interesting. And that was a really great guideline for me because I didn't have to then pretend like, oh, yeah, he's doing this because this is going on. I don't, I don't, didn't know that. Um, so if there was ever a time where something looked strange or didn't seem right to me, I would just say, what's going on here? And that way the analyst, the expert, uh, could, could really get in. And that's kind of the way that I operated those, those broadcasts for a while until I really became comfortable with it. And there's still some things that I don't feel comfortable about in curling that I'll just throw out there to the analyst to ask. So that's kind of the way I approached it. Obviously, it's different with football and basketball sports. I grew up playing and watching religiously. Uh, but for those other sports, I just kind of took it as I was a you know, a casual fan at home. Didn't want to insult the, 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 the fan that watched every week or every day. Uh, so obviously, I did my homework as much as I possibly could. But I also felt like there was a new audience at the Olympics every year, especially with curling, where we could kind of teach as we went. What did you do? I mean, did you go to curling clubs? Uh, I know there's one in upstate New York. Um, like, did you watch it with people and have them explain it to you? Uh, and I guess that goes with luge or anything else. Uh, what, what's the best way that you found to educate yourself about doing something niche? Yeah, I went down to two. There's two curling clubs in Albany. I went, I went to one of them, Schenectady Curling Club, just spent an afternoon down there watching them as they played. Uh, talking to some of the people there, trying to learn the sport as much as I could. And also, you know, a system that, that I still do in terms of preparing for football and basketball games, I watched film. I had old broadcast copies of the Olympics and other, you know, Olympic qualifying events and just watched and tried to learn from the other announcers who had done it before me. And uh, I still I still find that as a valuable tool as I prepare to do football and basketball every week just to hear, you know, what the announcers are talking about, if there's stories that they covered in depth the week before, do I need to get into it, you know, that when I do it my game. Um, so I really feel that film study is an important thing when it comes to announcing a game. And, and then that was incredibly helpful for me when learning sports for the first time. Main, more mainstream sport. Um, Similar question, though. How do you handle just dropping in and uh, not necessarily learning the sport, but learning the teams and the people um, as somebody who is not a face that NFL teams or college teams are seeing on a regular basis, but showing up and and creating the best picture you can? Um, what's that like for you on a day-to-day or a week-to-week basis? I mean, I think one of my biggest pet peeves growing up as a Yankee fan was when the game was on national television and, and I felt the announcers didn't 
know what was going on. Yeah. I didn't know the storylines of the team. And that, that kind of stuck with me through the years. And then I don't want to be that guy. Um, so, you know, it's a lot of reading and, and the teams today, whether it's the NFL or even college basketball teams, they're so good about sending you press clippings from the newspapers or from blogs or from their internet coverage. Um, and and I, I think that's very important to read all that because you can't go into an environment and not know what happened at practice on Tuesday or not know that this person missed time with this injury. Um, not everything is in the game notes. Um, and even just as a conversation, you know, what are people talking about? There's times during where if I'm doing an NFL game where as I'm writing out my boards, I'll, I'll hook up my computer and listen uh, to the to talk radio in the town of the game I'm doing or the or the opponent. That's interesting. I want to hear what the yeah I want to hear what the callers are calling in and talking about. What's on the fans' mind? Because that's what we're trying to do uh, during the broadcast. We're we're trying to you know be one of the fans that, that that's watching. And, and you know I always thought that you know I want the fan at home to pretend that we're at a restaurant or a bar and we're just talking sports and having a conversation about sports. So I need to know what they're talking about in order to have that conversation. So reading the clippings, listening to talk radio, uh, those are all things that I try to do on a weekly basis, especially for the NFL when you have a whole week to prepare for a game to get ready for Sunday. Do you remember the first NFL game you did? I do. Uh, I did a couple of preseason games, but the first game on CBS I did was um, 2011. It was the Bills at the Bengals. Buffalo was three and zero, and they lost at the uh, at the horn on a Mike Nugent field goal. That was the first game I did with Steve Tasker. Do you remember the call? <laughs> I do. I do. I do. I remember saying Nugent, and it's no good. And the Bengals hand the Bills their first loss of the season. So that was. Uh, I did not sleep the night before the game um, <laughs> at all. I was. Uh, I I found out about a month before. I watched every single game that they had played leading up. I don't think I could have been more prepared and then I didn't sleep. So I don't know what all that preparation really did, but, uh, but no, that was, that was something I'll never forget. I actually went, I did a game in Cincinnati this past season and that was the first time I had been back to do a Bengals home game. And I, I thought a lot about that day because actually I don't know how this happened. I had the same exact hotel room. Uh, at the same hotel what? that I did for my first game. So I, I remember I walked in and I'm like, oh, I remember seeing every corner of this room because I was trying to find a way to fall asleep and I was just pacing around that room. And sure enough, I was back in the same exact room for the game I did this year. It's kind of kind of crazy. What had you done for CBS to that point? Um, and I guess what did you think at that point when they call you and say, hey, Andrew, we've got an NFL game for you? The first thing I ever did for CBS was in 2010. I did the U.S. Open tennis in 3D. Uh, so that was. I didn't even know that was a thing. Yeah. It, well, it didn't. It wasn't a thing for very long. Um, <laughs> but it. But it was attempting to be a thing, and uh, that was really how the door opened uh, for me at CBS. Was doing this 3D tennis, uh, and then they kind of expanded their coverage the following year without 3D. Um, and also they asked me to come uh, uh, to the Masters. So the first two things I did for them were U.S. Open tennis and Masters. And then in 2011, at the time of the U.S. Open, which was in August, they need, they had an opening for a game in week four. And I had just done the Browns preseason package uh, that year. And they asked to see my tape. And they liked it, and they gave me an opportunity to, to pinch it and fill in to a game that was going to 3% of the country. <laughs> um, and then at the end of the game, with it being tied in the final seconds, it went to 100% of the country, which is <laughs> kind of funny how it, how it all worked out. But, yeah, I would, I would say that the, the, the 3D tennis was kind of what opened the door for me, trying to do the best I could there to show them that I was serious about doing this and then, you know, I got a wonderful opportunity, and they, they put the trust in me to do that game in 2011, and uh, that kind of set the stage for uh, for where I am now. Quick aside, uh, do you call 3D tennis any differently than 2D tennis? Well, you do wear glasses. Did you um, seriously call it? Yeah, that's yeah, amazing. Kind of had to, kind of had to feel it. Um, so. And, uh, yeah, it was just crazy. We were up at the top of Arthur Ashe Stadium, uh, this little small little booth, and was wearing 3D glasses. And, 
no, it was a big it was a big deal in the sense that you know I knew nobody really was watching because three D tennis. Uh, was you know 3D TVs were you know there's probably like hundred of them sold. That sounds like a Wii game, not like a broadcast. Yeah, yeah. Like, but I knew that all the bosses were watching and all the you know executives were watching because they were trying to figure out is it is this the wave of the future. So while I knew there was no one really at home that that could see this, I was incredibly well prepared because I knew there'd be a lot of eyeballs on this within the CBS family. So. Uh, not that I wouldn't take an assignment seriously, but I took that very seriously because I felt like that was, you know, somewhat of an audition for me to show them what I could do, even though I was wearing crazy glasses uh, from the top of Arthur Ashe Stadium. Yeah, I'm curious because uh, a lot of us nowadays, the easiest places, and it's I feel like it's always been like this in some senses, um, maybe more so now, but it's so easy to get like football, basketball, baseball tape, because it, that those things are so abundant. Uh, and especially in an ESPN3 world and a lot of places where they produce their own stuff now, it's easier to get basketball tape, things of that nature. Um, and when you reach out to people, it's like, here's my basketball tape. And somebody will say, well, we have plenty of basketball people. What else can you do? Um, how did you, from your standpoint, like tennis and golf are your foot in the door, um, was that kind of the way you approached it going to a place like CBS and saying, Hey, look, I can do tennis and golf. Uh, do you have any opportunities there? And then like, let's see where this goes. Yeah, I think that uh, it's a great point that you make. And, you know, my, my thought was, it was they're not going to just take me and put me on an NFL game right away. I mean, that's, that's ultimately what I've wanted to do and what I still want to do for a very long time. But I don't think that, with the path that I was on with local TV and just doing a few few things on the side and then getting into the Olympics with curling and team handball that, you know, they weren't going to be like, Oh, you did team handball in the Olympics, you know, go do the bills game. Um, (laughs) So I needed to prove to them that, that, you know, I could be trusted on other things. And, you know, those other things started with tennis and, and, and moved into golf and then, you know, they felt comfortable enough with, you know, to me to get to know me. And that, that's a big part of it, too. I mean, you know, a lot of times if you're sending a resume tape around, you know, you don't really get to know the person. And that's why I, I always tell people who are, are starting to get an agent or looking into a, an agent world that, you know, you can have an agent, but you you still have to maintain relationships with executives and talent evaluators and your bosses just as much. I mean, just getting an agent doesn't mean, okay, you're done. You know, you get, you can do it all. I'll, you know, just show up at whatever game you get me. I mean, that, it's, it, that is not the right attitude to take. Uh, it is so important to have lunches with your bosses, call them, email them, uh, you know, stay in touch, develop a relationship with them. And that's kind of what I was able to do with the tennis and the golf, seeing, you know, the, the people that are now my bosses on a, a regular daily basis for two weeks at the U.S. Open and for one week at the Masters, you know, that, and that helps them earn trust in you, not only what you're doing on the air, but what they see in you off the air and how you handle yourself. So I, I think that was a big part of what I did before I started doing football and basketball at CBS. If I can divert back to the NFL real quick. Um, I appreciate you answering that, though, because I – Aside, like personal experience, I was talking to somebody last, I think last week or two weeks ago, um, and I said I've done gymnastics, and their ears perked up like I'd never seen before. Um, so I, I thought that was interesting. No, and that, that's great to showcase. I mean, look, we're in a world today, you, you know, you saw some of the things coming out of the, the, the firings and layoffs at ESPN that, you know, one of the things that they claim they want to see now is versatility. And, you know, uh, I, not that it's easy to call a football or a basketball game, but it's hard to call a gymnastics event or, uh, you know, lacrosse. Uh, they, you know, some of the sports that don't get the, 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 the limelight or the mainstream sports. So I think that it's tremendous to be able to do this different thing, do these different sports and, and show that you're a versatile person. Um, when it comes to your NFL stuff, what a... Uh... Your first game, obviously, you went from three percent to one hundred percent. What was that initial feedback like for you, and uh, and and what was the process like for you at that point? Of you know, you've now ingratiated yourself enough that they're saying, okay, we can trust this guy um, to to getting on the the full crew for for NFL Sundays. 
Yeah, the feedback was 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 pretty good. Um, you know, I don't know how I, after not sleeping, was able to you know, kind of. I think just the adrenaline took over, but I know I crashed hard that night on the plane home. I was just spent, but but thankfully it went well. It always helps when you have a close game uh, because that's you know the, a chance to show when you're talking about strategy and exciting moments. So there was a lot of different things in that game that. I think, you know, helped help me in terms of what they were able to see. Um, yeah, and, and they were happy with it. But then, you know, opportunities to do NFL games, you know, I didn't have another one for two years. Um, you know, thankfully, I was able to start doing some college football with them on CBS Sports Network. And that led to some college basketball with them. And then late in 2013, uh, I, I did a couple of games for them on the NFL package. And then 2014 was my first full season of NFL. This will be my fourth year coming up. So um, I think that that's another lesson that, you know, things went, I thought, and I thought they did too, that things went great in 2011. And I didn't call another NFL game for two years sure. uh so it's it's patience it's it's timing it's uh it's just making sure that you know you understand that this business is different and as much as i would have loved to have done an nfl game the following week i had to wait a couple of years to, to do them and uh i think that you know in this world everyone wants to see results right away uh and it doesn't always work that way but having that understanding of this business and, and what it takes to, uh and knowing that that timing is such a big part of it uh i was able to you know work hard at the college football uh to continue to try to get better every time i went you know on the microphone and i think that's that served me well when i I got some more chances a couple of years later. From a prep standpoint for an NFL week, um, not necessarily what it's like for you reading and, and researching and talking to people, but what's it like um, on the crew side, to people that you deal with, talking to producers, talking to your analysts, uh, you know, working with Steve and, and Steve um, and getting everything that you know out on the same page and kind of knowing how you're going to storyboard a game going into it and graphically what you want to show and story arcs, all of all the kind of production side of things. Uh, what's a week like for you as far as that side of things is concerned? It's constant communication, um, a lot of it over email, but certainly phone calls as well. Um, discussing, you know, big picture items that if there's a blowout, we might want to bring in, or even if it's not a blowout, if, you know, you're doing, uh, doing a game with a young quarterback, you know, figuring out who are the top five young quarterbacks in the league right now so that the, the people in New York can build a graphic. And that, that could be something that, that we can discuss during our game. Sure. Um, the, the producers have, have massive roles and probably don't get enough credit for everything they do during the week. Uh, setting up our production meetings with the teams on the weekends, um, incorporating all the graphics and kind of, you know, by the end of the week, I think everyone feels pretty good about, you know, their prep for the game, but the producers and the people that are making the graphics and, and trying to get the video uh, vignettes cut early in the week, that's tough because you haven't really, you know, completely dived in yet and you're trying to you know take a guess as to what everyone's going to be talking about at the end of the week but that's work that has to be get you know has to get done early in the week so uh, i think the job never stops during football i know for me it's a seven day a week uh job and and for the producers even more so because uh they have to really by the time we get to the site on friday you know, mostly everything has to be done uh, outside of our actual meetings. And then, you know, every Saturday night, we have a big production meeting with everyone on the crew. Uh, we, we talk in depth about the open and how we want to, uh, you know, tackle that. Uh, some of the things we definitely want to get in, uh, whether it's uh, some nuggets from our meetings or uh, certainly big points uh, that we discussed during the week. And this, gra- you know, we'll look at every single graphic. Do you like this? Should we get this in? Is this a maybe? Is this a no? Uh, so, you know, it's a meeting that takes a couple hours uh, just to make sure that, you know, when we wake up Sunday morning, you know, we're ready to go for the game. What's in-game communication like? Um, how much are you asking for stuff? How much, what's, what's being directed like at that level like? There's a lot. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think it's a lot to the analysts uh, in terms of calling which replays they want. Uh, you know, if it's behind the end zone, the all 22, the slash camera, whatever it might be, uh, they are always talking to the producer in the talk back button. Uh, for me, 
yes, I still, you know, I'm not calling for replays, but I am saying, you know, give me a shot of this offensive coordinator. I want to tell a story about him after the next play. Or, uh, you know, let's let's show the flashback from last week when they had a game-winning drive because they could have another situation where they have a game-winning drive coming up. And that could also be the producer saying, hey, let's do this, you know, this, this, you know looking ahead, uh, that this could happen as well. So, you know, there's a lot. There's a lot going on in our ears during the game. Um, I think that that's, you know, one of the underrated things. I mean, I think a lot of people listening to this podcast are already kind of in the business and, and know that you're getting a lot of things in your ear. But I think that's the one thing that people outside the business, you know, don't really realize that, you know, there's, there's so much going on during a game in your headset that you really have to balance, you know, you know, what you're seeing, what you're saying, what you're hearing. How about prep for an NCAA tournament? Uh, and and I, I'm really curious from the standpoint of I just did a uh, – I did a lacrosse, a high school lacrosse tournament this past week uh, where there were eight teams. We only called four of them because we didn't do the quarters. So I prepped for eight teams and I threw four of them out on Friday night and worried about four on Sunday so I, or Saturday. So I was kind of confused to begin with. Um, and I could not. Like, I think it went well enough on Saturday, but like there were multiple times where I, in my head, could not keep straight who was on what team. Um, what is it like for you when you do the NCAA tournament and you have to keep straight who's on what team and keep straight in, into a deeper standpoint, uh, what information belongs to what team and what game? Because I'm sure there have got to be times where you see something and then in the course of a broadcast, it pops into your head and you go, well, no, that's not about these guys. That's somebody else. Um, how do you keep that all straight in such a short window? It's by far the hardest week of the year in terms of prep because we don't find out where we're going or who we're going to see until after the brackets come out on Sunday, on Selection Sunday. So if you have a, a Thursday, Saturday site, you find out Sunday night, you work all day Monday, and then Tuesday you got to get on an airplane because Wednesday is the day they have all the practices the day before, and that's your time to meet with coaches and players. And when you meet with those coaches and players, you know, you, you want to already kind of know what's going on. You can't show up and say, Hey, you're starting five. I mean, you, you've got to, you've got to know what's going on. So, um, you know, I always cross my fingers selection Sunday in hopes that I've seen a couple of the teams either that year or even the year before, just so I have some type of basis of, of who they are, what they do and, you know, who's on the team. Um, and then it's, you know, I and Eagle who's done this for many years to me, one of the best, if not the best in the business. His advice to me the first time I did it was, you can't prepare for these games as you would for a normal game when you have three, four days or five days to prepare for, you know, your Saturday, February afternoon uh, game. So, you know, that, that really stuck with me because, you know, I like to over prepare. And in this situation, you can't. It's really just the basics. It's getting everyone down on a chart and then making sure you watch some video. You know, I I like to watch one or two basketball games of the teams before I do a game. Here, maybe I'm watching a half just so I get a feel of their style, their pace, uh, who plays, what their rotation is. Just try to put some faces to names. And then at the practice, you know, the day before, in addition to talking to the SIDs and, and talking with the coach and maybe a player or two, you know, I actually watch them. And I can see, you know, thankfully they all have to wear numbers now at those shoot-arounds. They didn't <laughs> used to have to. They could wear whatever they wanted. But that, that's a huge thing for me, <laughs> just to start seeing some numbers uh, on the back of their jersey. So uh, it's, it's a different week. And I kind of layer information, uh, but but, you know, it's it's just really the basics for the first round. Um, and, and then once the teams advance to the second round Friday, I could dive in a little deeper on some of the bigger, you know, off the field, off the court storylines. But, it's, it, you know, survive in advance is the story of March. And, and really that week is just 
you know, try to get as many things down on a piece of paper and get a lot of rest. That's the other thing. I mean, I don't think it does anyone any favors to stay up till four in the morning, get three hours of sleep, and then, you know, go call a game. I mean, when you're calling four games in a day, you need to be well-rested. So I think the first year I stayed up really late and just, you know, wanted to cram and prep. And, and that, you know, that that's not a good way to go about it. Now it's you know, when it gets to be 10, 30, 11 o'clock the night before, wherever I'm at in my prep, I put the pen down and go to sleep because I, I know I'll be better off with a good night's sleep than, uh, than staying up a couple of extra hours. How fun is it? <laughs> All that said. It's, you know, I've, people have asked me what do I like to do the most, and I give kind of a convoluted answer. I'll say this. What I love doing the most is the NFL. What's the most fun? the NCAA tournament. And what's my favorite week of the year? The Masters. I'm fortunate to be able to do all those things. I, I know that, that I'm very lucky to be in that position. I never, ever take it for granted. Uh, the Masters, I, I just think is, I love it because all, overall, a lot of CBS people are there. Almost everyone that works is there. There's a lot of hanging out. There's a lot of catching up. And it's obviously a wonderful place to be. Um, but for the tournament, to your question, it's the most fun. Uh, you just never know what's going to happen. The atmosphere, like this year, was in Salt Lake City. The crowds were phenomenal. The Northwestern story was amazing. Um, you know, that, that type of atmosphere, that type of excitement, games coming right down to the final seconds. There's nothing. I mean, that's what it is. That's what we grew up watching. That, that's the. That's what it, that's why the NCAA tournament is the NCAA tournament, I and mean, it's an absolute privilege to be a part of it. I'm, I'm curious how you handle like crazy things, just from a play-by-play standpoint. When I mean, we've already covered. There's a lot going on in your ear. Uh, there's always a lot going on in terms of where you're looking and where your attention is split. Um, something like the goaltend or the supposed goaltend that didn't get called in the Northwestern Gonzaga game. Uh, do you remember how you handled that in the moment? Uh, and, and what are you doing in the immediate aftermath of that, just trying to kind of figure things out? Yeah, I mean, in the moment, did not see live the hand going through the basket. So thought it was a block. And then see Doug, uh, Doug Collins, Chris Collins, <laughs> go nuts and get teed up. And that was my first train of thought. Like, this is a story, close game. Collins getting a tee in a big spot that could be very costly for his team. And, and my focus was on him and how he got the tee and what happened. So I think that, um, you know, that became it my priority until I saw the replays. And then when I saw the replays, obviously the course of the, of the argument and everything changed. How was it keeping your you're calm in a situation like that. Cause obviously things are going a mile a minute. Uh, what's, what's your process of where you're going and how you're, how you're keeping it straight yourself to make it straight for the people at home. Yeah. I mean, once we saw the replay of the hand going through the hoop, it was clear that the, the refs had missed a call. Uh, you can argue whether or not Collins's T was warranted. I mean, not, obviously he was right, but, should he still have, you know, gone over the line like that and, 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 you know, put the other team at the free throw line? I think at that point you're thinking you don't want to kill the referees, but you do need to make it clear that they made a mistake. And then you need to, I don't want to say backtrack, but you have to then put into context why Collins did what he did. And that, that was still a debate after. Yes, it was a bad call, but was Collins still right to do what he did? Um, so, you know, I, I think it, at that point, then it's, you know, processing the information and then setting the stage for what's next. Now there's going to be free throws. Uh, now this, could this change the game? Is this the turning point in the game? Um, there's a lot going on in that moment. And I thought we handled it well. Um, again, didn't see it live, but once we saw the replay, I thought we were able to be like, okay, well, this is what happened. And this is, this is a little bit different situation than what we first expected when it first happened. I don't want to take too much more of your time because uh, inside baseball for people listening to this, it's, it's 1030 at night. Uh, <laughs> but uh, I, I want to ask you a couple of kind of wonkier questions along those lines as well. And if I can go even way back to when you really started getting into play-by-play um, and you started getting some basketball and, and even NFL stuff, uh, what do you remember were the things that stuck in your craw early on in terms of getting better, working at, 
and the things that that you had kind of earmarked as uh, you know these are the things I need to make better if I want to make it to that next level. That's uh, a good question. I, I think that um, the one thing that I've really focused on in terms of play by play is making sure I nail the big moments. I, I think that's important. Um, I think that when there's a, you know, a buzzer beater or a big drive in an NFL game, um, and there's a, you know, f- you know, 50 yard touchdown, those are moments that you can't get back and you need to be at your best. So I think that I've really tried to, to make sure that in the big moments, I have a big call. I'm right on top of it. Um, and, and, and that comes out, uh, to, to be the best that I can make it. Uh, the thing that I've continued to work on is my voice. Um, I feel like, you know, that, uh, it's important, uh, at, at the next level. And it's something that I've worked with with a vocal coach, um, just trying to, you know, make sure that in those big moments, my voice is where I want it to be. And even when it's not a big moment, when it's second and 10 in the first quarter, that, that my voice is, is sounding the way it should. Um, so I've worked hard at that as well. Um, and, and, you know, I, I think the biggest thing, if you want to go back as, as your question was from the start of my play by play is just getting reps and making the most of them. I think that that is what is incredibly important is just to, to do as many games as you can, uh, then you're seeing things that, you know, down the road that you've already seen. Uh, you've already been in situations where you know what's going to happen. Uh, I think getting those reps, you just feel so much more comfortable uh, for the next time you do it. And that's what I always tell people who are trying to get into the business or just starting out. It doesn't matter where or how, but to get reps, you never take one for granted because you're always getting better or you should always be getting better every time you do a game. What uh? What do you do vocally? Like, are there are there things that bothered you from the outset that you had to work on and focus on, and, and how do you attack fixing those? Yeah, it's it's strange. Um, you know, I, I think that I think we'd all like our voices, or at least I would, be a little bit deeper. Um, and and, and so I think a, a lot of the things that you know those. There's not like a checklist of things per se where I could say, hey, this guy helped me with this, this, and this. It was more just being conscious of it, just being conscious of my voice. Uh, being in good posture is something that, you know, there's pictures of me announcing games where I'm slunched over, you know, hunched over and calling a game. You know, that that is something that I've gotten rid of. Um, I always try to be in good posture when I'm calling a game. Um, I'm, I'm thinking about the crowd noise and not trying to, to yell over it. Um, maybe that's something I did early on where when, you know, in a big moment when the crowd was yelling, I tried to scream over it. I don't, you know, I try not to do that anymore. Um, so I think it's just being more aware of what, of how you sound and, and, and the way that you're, you know, delivering uh, your style and your pitch. And also, you know, another big piece of advice is you got to go back and watch everything. Um, I know we always don't have time in this day and age to sit back and watch a game, but you know, I'll always listen to my calls um, of the of the touchdowns at the very least um, the day after the game, and then and then hopefully, uh, depending upon the week, have time to watch the entire game back. So that's the only way I'm going to get better, and that's the only way I can really hear how my voice is sounding or or things that I like doing or, or don't or that I did, didn't like that I did. So I, I think it's very important to listen back to your stuff, at least a little bit of it, uh, every time you do a game. What are you watching for? Uh, it, outside of those big moments, what are the types of things you're looking for? Uh, I mean, everything. How I interact with my analysts. Uh, do I set them up in the right direction? Am I, you know, there's a lot of graphics that we have on the page during an NFL game. Am I missing them? Because a lot of, I, I call the game off the field. Uh, so it's very easy for them to put a graphic up on the screen that everyone at home is seeing, and I'm not seeing it because I'm looking at the field. So I think it, you know I don't want to. I'm pretty. I have a good system in place now where uh, I have a spotter in the booth, and if there's something on the screen 
uh, he'll point it to me and he'll hit me or point to the screen just so he, just so I don't miss it. Uh, I might not say every graphic that appears on the screen, but certainly with me looking at the field so much, I'm trying to make sure that I'm not missing something um, that the people at home are seeing. Why do you watch off the field? A football game? Uh, I, I just can see the plays developing so much better. Um, I can, I, you know, I, I, certainly passing plays, I don't think, you know, I know a lot of people do watch off a monitor, and that's fine, but I, I can see if a guy is coming open down the field in a passing play. Um, uh, sometimes on a run, I'll look because I, it's easier to see the tackler on a run. Uh, so I will look, at, you know, sometimes if I see a handoff, then I'll look down to the screen so I can see who makes the tackle. But on passing downs, I'm always looking at the field just because I can see the routes and who's coming open so much better. Basketball, too, or is basketball a split? No, basketball sitting right on the court. I, I watch the – oh, yeah, I mean, I watch the court. I don't, I don't watch the screen, but, okay. you know, you're sitting on the court, so you don't really need to – I mean, again, with the graphics, you do need to be aware of it. And, and during a timeout, you need to see who they're showing the coach or the referee or whatnot but you know in live game action i'm just watching the court i feel like i'm weird that like if you put a tv in front of me i just start watching the tv um like i've gone hmm. to games live and i watch the video board i don't ask um <laughs> I, I can't tell you why um but like i'll do games even now and i just feel like i'm my eyes wind up on the monitor even if i'm sitting courtside and i don't i don't know if that's good or bad because um, i probably miss some stuff that i can't see right in front of my face but no, I, you know, I think that Al Michaels is the one that I heard say it best. Like, you're, you know, you should be watching the monitor because that's what everyone at home is seeing. So you don't want to be announcing a game that they're not watching. Uh, so I totally get looking at it. And certainly if I have a bad vantage point in the press box, um, I did a Bills preseason game this past summer in Washington, and they put oh, it in the corner of the end zone. Yeah, yeah and I – I called the entire game off the monitor because I couldn't see the field from, from where I was. So there, there are times when I'll do it. Uh, but I just, I don't know. I, I just kind of, you know, got in the habit of watching the field and that's, that's kind of still what I do when I get older and start to lose my vision not for a while. <laughs> I might have to change that up. But for now, I'm going to keep watching the field. Last question. I'll let you go on this note. Uh, I want to double back to something you said earlier. Uh, you mentioned the masters is your favorite week. Uh, what do you like most about doing the Masters on television and uh, and being a part of that? Well, it's if there's many things about it, but I, I would say that um, you know it's a tournament that I grew up watching with my family every year. Specifically, my grandfather who taught me how to play golf, and uh, you know it always makes me think of my family and especially my grandfather. And so being there is special because, you know, we, we always watched it. We would watch every year. We'd watch the Masters tournament. Uh, so, so that is kind of in a nostalgic way, one of the, one of the big reasons why I like it. Uh, also, as I mentioned earlier, um, it's great to see all my colleagues because, you know, when you're at an, a football game or a basketball game, you're just seeing the crew, um, as we talked about earlier, that, that newsroom environment in local news, you don't really have that that much, but you do at the Masters uh, because there's so many people that are associated with it for CBS that, that work uh, the tournament. So you get to see cameramen that you don't see all the time or directors that you don't get to work with very often. So I really like that part about it. And besides that, it's just an amazing place. And the golf is incredible, as we saw this year. And uh it's the best tournament in the world. Uh, Andrew, if people want to find you on uh, on TV or online, uh, it's summer now, so it's probably hard. But uh, if they wanted to track you down on Twitter or whatnot, how do they uh, how do they do that? Yeah, Twitter is just my name at Andrew Catalan. Uh, so I try to uh, try to keep tabs on what's going on there, and uh, yeah, pretty much. Uh, uh, you know, in August, preseason football start up again. I'll do the Bills. Uh, preseason, and uh, then we'll jump right into the regular season. So uh, that'll be the next time, pretty much, that uh, you'll be seeing me regularly. That's Andrew Catalan of CBS Sports joining us here on Play by Playcast. A lot to unpack in there, a lot to dissect and uh, and go through. But the thing that I think sticks with me most when I think back to that entire conversation was, and I mean, it's dumb luck, and Andrew described it like that too, uh, getting your foot in the door at a major network, not by like, hey, CBS, here's my basketball tape, or hey, CBS, here's my NFL tape. Um, 
as if like it's really easy to get NFL tape. Um, but getting your foot in the door by being able to do 3D tennis uh, or being able to do curling and you know finding your avenue. You know if 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 one door and one way into a place is not open, like go around back or like maybe a side door is open. Find another way in. If your path is blocked, well, find the other path. Uh, and I think that was interesting to just kind of hear about how non-traditional sports and the ability to do those is what really led Andrew Catalan now to being on you know, CBS's NFL Sunday coverage and being on the NCAA tournament. So uh, if you take nothing else from this podcast with Andrew Catalan, uh, take that nugget and stick it in the back of your head just from the standpoint of if there's a door closed... Well, maybe that's not the right door in the first place. Maybe there's a door that's open somewhere else and try a different avenue. Uh, I just thought that was really interesting. Uh, Many thanks to Andrew for joining us here on the pod this week. Uh, Next week, Mark Janes mentioned that off the top. We'll talk some racing and the Indy 500. Uh, Looking forward to uh, your thoughts on that conversation. If you have thoughts on this one, again, hit us up on Twitter. We are at PXPCast. I am at Joel Godet, and I am out of time. It's a podcast. I'm really not. I just just said I am. Uh, But we'll talk to you next week. Hit it, Marshmallow. This is Play by Playcast, and we are out.